All right. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome to Emergency Trauma Mama's podcast. And I've had just a small hiatus. However, I'm back now. So I just want to preface our podcast today with just a small disclaimer, as always, and that this blog is in no way, shape, or form meant to be used in a legal capacity, and it is not meant to be used to establish uh, standard operating procedure or standard of care in the legal sense. And basically, consult your doctor for any issues that you may have. These are case studies. These are not real patients. Um, In the interest of privacy and HIPAA, we always contain that. So these are just case scenarios. And again, under no circumstances uh, should we be held liable or responsible for any damages arising from this podcast. So now that that's out of the way, let's move on to what we're going to talk about today. So the biggest thing when you hear the radio go off is, what kind of trauma patient am I getting? What happens when you hear that you have an MVC rollover, but the patient is 34 weeks pregnant? I feel like everybody kind of has a similar situation in their mind of that dun-dun-dun. Uh, oh no, she's pregnant, right? Because now, we all know, we don't just have one patient, we have two patients, regardless of how gravid the patient is. I think every trauma nurse and every trauma surgeon and emergency physician kind of feels the same way, because in, in the interest of life and hope and preserving all that is good in the world, we just think, okay, we've, we don't only have one patient, we have two patients, potentially, and depending on how pregnant our patient is that that second patient could be coming right imminently or we might have to think about an imminent delivery or a c-section or something of that nature so something that we don't do every day i think we get really good at um obviously taking care of what we're comfortable with but the pregnant trauma patient really pushes our limits in that we do not do it every day. So let's talk a little bit about that type of patient. So we're working in a busy urban emergency department. We'll say it's a level two trauma center. And you get a call. Um, the ECRN says that you are getting an AMBO en route with a patient involved in a high-speed MVC. She's a female, 20s, 30s-ish Uh, she's obviously gravid, unknown gestational age. So right there, when you hear that, I kind of feel like that's when our brains go, "Uh uh-oh, do we have the panda warmer in our trauma room? Do we have NICU? Do we have PICU? Who can we call? Uh, Do we have residents? Do we have OBGYN residents? Who can we call? Because at this point, we really need uh, to call in you know, trauma takes a village anyway, but we need to call in some other people from our village from some other specialties, right? Because we, as ED trauma folks, don't feel equipped to do all of these things and take care of the trauma patient. So we need help, right? So we're thinking, okay, who can we call? Um, depending on what, what's going to go on with this patient. But what are your resources? I think that's the biggest thing to know prior to getting these types of patients. And have your staff been trained on how to use the warmer? Um, are, they, are your nurses required to take, you know, neonatal resuscitation? Um, or are they just taking PALS and EMPC, which is obviously fine, but regarding the NICU portion of it, who else can you call to get in your trauma room to help you take care of potentially 
patient number two, which could be imminently delivered, right, upon arrival to the recess room. So thinking ahead, planning ahead, anticipating, of course, that's what we do. And uh, the next thing you notice is you get a set of vitals, and in the field, her heart rate is 104, respirators 25, BP 104 over 54, O2 sat is 98% on room air. Um, of course, they're activating, you're, you're going to activate for this patient just based on, you know, mechanism alone because it's high-speed MVC. And they don't give you a lot of other info because they're they're ready to, they're on their way and they're doing stuff in the back of the rig. So that's all you know. So let's just kind of briefly recap um, what we do know just talking about trauma, preg- pregnant trauma patients. So we know that um, trauma is actually the most common cause of non-obstetrical maternal death in the United States, which is interesting. And if you're uh, at all wanting to know more about this is actually um, on MDOCS. It's an uh, actual case study uh, written by some physicians in New York and another physician, <clears throat> excuse me, at Parkland. And it's really interesting. So if you want to just go to MDOCS and type in resuscitation of the pregnant trauma patient, pearls and pitfalls, you can actually look at this as well. Again, um, blunt trauma is most common, so status post MVC. However, I think it's really of note to talk about uh, IPV or intimate partner violence and falls are also two other common mechanisms of injury for the pregnant trauma patient. So not only do we have to think about, with the MVC, it seems very straightforward. However, keep that assault and IPV in the back of your mind um, in addition to the falls. And I say that I'm using air quotation marks, falls, because even in the ATLS book, um, it talks about how, excuse me, IPV is a major cause of injury in women during cohabitation, marriage, and pregnancy. So when a woman becomes pregnant and she's already in a relationship that's probably not the best, or she's experienced abuse prior to the pregnancy, when she becomes pregnant, she is so much more likely to be physically abused. So that fall, quote fall, unquote fall, could be a push down the stairs. So I want to plant that seed in your brain so the next time you do see a pregnant trauma patient in your recess room, you are asking the right questions and not assuming that those bruises are just because her clotting factors are off because she's pregnant or, you know, asking the questions that we need to ask when it comes to do you feel safe where you're living at home? You know, have you ever been kicked or pushed or punched or you know has your has your partner ever put their hands around your neck and put any amount of pressure on it because when we talk about strangulation that's a whole nother subject matter of which I'm very passionate about so you know asking the right questions really is going to make the difference for your gravid patient outcome Um, you know we don't want a pregnant woman to go back to a batterer So make sure that you're asking the right questions. Don't assume that the assault, um, you know, she's usually going to make up some kind of story um, to cover for her significant other. And intimate partner violence, we know that that's what happens. So keep in mind that blunt trauma is the most common, as with this case. So the MVC 
straight up MVC rollover. However, assault, IPV, intimate partner violence, and falls, which could be pushes, don't keep, you know, don't, don't not have a high index of suspicion just because she says I fell down the basement stairs. Did he really push her? Um, and she's not going to tell you that. She's going to cover for him because she doesn't want him to go to jail because he's the provider and typically he's controlling all of the money and of course her main instinct is to protect her unborn child so she is not going to come out and tell you unless you ask those questions so please 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 be on the lookout for that um, and ask those questions about feeling safe it's so important and again we know that the key to keeping mom healthy um, or excuse me keeping baby healthy is keeping mom healthy so it's important to note that the best fetal resuscitation is good maternal resuscitation so if we don't take good care of mom we know we're not taking good care of baby so if we don't optimize her hemodynamic status and her oxygenation and her ventilation then we are not ensuring that we're going to get the best fetal outcome So again, preparing ahead of time, I really recommend if you have any ability in your facility to do simulation that you do do a pregnant trauma patient. We all know these are not your everyday trauma patients. Um, Morbidly obese patients, we don't get those every day. Practicing, how are you going to intubate these patients? Do you have your difficult airway cart? Do you have other ability to intubate patients. What are you gonna do? Do you have a way to get anesthesia at the bedside in a timely manner? Um, If you run into trouble with a difficult airway. The time that you're having trouble with a difficult airway with these types of patients that we don't get every day is not the time to think, oh, you know, it would have been nice to have a difficult airway cart or, hey, it would have been nice to have, you know, anesthesia show up. So again, planning ahead and having those resources right at your fingertips, again, are key. And especially if you aren't um, in a level one trauma center where you have residents, um, say you're in a level three and you don't, you're a very lean organization and you don't have residents and you don't have the ability to get anesthesia there in a timely manner. What do you have in your trauma room to help you um, visualize the cords and get in that airway? Because we know that Certain patients, they're they are difficult to get. So what are you going to do about it? Um, all right. So moving on with our patients. The patient arrives and, uh-oh, she is in much worse condition than what we heard on the radio. Now she's confused, agitated, and not following commands. Uh-oh. She is actually breathing shallowly, shallow respirations, and and rapidly. So her vital signs are as follows. Heart rate's 140, BP 90 over 40, and SAT is 92% on 2 liters per nasal cannula. Really, I probably, what's that? I don't know any medics that put uh, a trauma patient on 2 liters per nasal cannula, but we'll just pretend for this scenario's sake. Uh, that that's what she's on. She has noted bruising to the abdomen, sub-Q emphysema, rice krispies to the chest wall. You decide, obviously, she needs immediate airway management due to impending respiratory failure, and of course, she needs a chest tube um, for suspected pneumo. And so while your team members are preparing for um, RSI and um, chest tube, you go ahead and uh, get that FAST exam keeping in mind that you're gonna have a lot of difficulty visualizing her left chest. Um, Obviously with her heart, you know, you've got lots of fluid, lots of air, the diaphragm's pushed up from a gravid uterus. And 
However, you do think you see any abdominal free fluid. And oh, by the way, there is a good fetal heartbeat, which is awesome to hear. And so you wonder as you're finishing up your fast, like, okay, what are the stats on that? So how reliable is your fast in detecting free fluid on the gravid patient? Well, obviously it gets less and less sensitive the more pregnant your patient is. Sensitivity is, of course, going to decrease with the gestational age. And, of course, that's going to be due to the altered fluid flow within the abdomen. So there was a study at UC Davis. um, Sample size was about 328, uh, 328 pregnant trauma patients, and 23 of those who had positive intra-abdominal injuries. The sensitivity of the FAST um, was approximately 61%, and the specificity was 94.4. Of course, this has to do with the fact that you you know, you're obviously going to get a better fast or more sensitive exam in the first trimester versus the third. And of course, we know that things become very cluttered and space becomes limited the bigger that the baby grows. So again, just keep that in mind, depending on how gravid your patient is, your fast may or may not be accurate. Um, so your nurses are ready to go now. You've got your RSI drugs, um, your tubes ready, and... Obviously, the patient's on a non-rebreather. Sats are 100%. You've got, a, uh, got an intern, and he's ready to put in his chest tube. So the nurses have him prepped. And your nurses are going to go ahead and push your drugs. And you're thinking to yourself, hmm, what do I need to remember about airway management with the pregnant trauma patient? Again, remember that because of their blood flow and the changes that their their airway is because of the hormones their you know all the progesterone and total body water has changed so their their mucosal friability is like so much more likely they're more likely to bleed basically so when you're opening their airway and they're also um induced to have more airway edema in addition to that hormone shift so keep that in mind when you're thinking about a malampati score and you know their neck and all of those things that can make an airway very difficult in a pregnant patient um things change right so this could make your regular normal rsi quick in quick out get the patient tube ready to go because of these things that the airway edema and the friability of the mucosal membranes, you know, obviously she can start bleeding even if you accidentally just kind of, you know, nick the side um, of their gum or what have you. Because of those hormones, they're going to bleed and they're going to bleed a lot. So then you got a suction and then that's more trauma in the mouth. So again, this patient can become a true airway nightmare for you if you're not careful. Um, Again, we have to think about the risk of aspiration, right? Because their lower esophageal sphincter is, their tone is off, right? Because they've got all that increased intra-abdominal pressure because they've got the gravid uterus. um, Everything's pushing up, diaphragm pushing up. So positive pressure ventilation should be avoided, right? You don't want to bag the heck out of this patient. So if you are bagging the patient, however, think lower volumes and slower inhalation times. So please, please think about that gravid uterus pushing up. Your your patient's going to vomit and possibly, you know, have aspiration pneumonia and ARDS and all of that, <clears throat> excuse me, complications in addition to... Um, 
other things. So keep that in mind. And again, what happens with their oxygen consumption? Well, it's increased, right? So they're pregnant. And 30 to 60%, they can have a decrease in total lung volume. And also, again, that diaphragm is displacing everything. So they're taking a deep breath, but not really. Um, so they're going to desat, right? A lot more quickly than our non-gravid or non-pregnant trauma patient. So when you start to see um, a pregnant patient desat, you, you have to think about, okay, mom's desatting what's happening to baby, right? Because again, we have the two patients. So don't take a long time to tube them. Don't overbag them and think about that friable mucosal membrane and get in and get out. Um, and if you have any problems, don't hesitate to get help. So, you know, anesthesia, what, whatever resources that you have. So, um, you move on, and as you're intubating this patient, you realize you have a difficult time, and there's some mild bleeding, but you do you are able to pass a bougie, and the seven and a half tube meets some resistance. But luckily, you had a six point five ready to go, and that tube passes. You switch the tubes out, and the six point five ET tube goes down, no problem. Um, as you look up at your intern, um, he's about ready to put the chest tube in, and he says, you know, is there anything else I need to think about when I'm putting um, a chest tube in a pregnant patient? Well, yes, by the way, there is. Of course, in advanced pregnancy, you have displacement of the diaphragm up to four centimeters. So, um, of course, we do not want to have an inadvertent transhepatic or transplenic chest tube placement. So make sure um, that you are putting the chest tube in the third or fourth intercostal space on the pregnant patient instead of the fifth. So yes, you would want to do that and think about that because that's all critically important information, right? So your intern's going to go ahead and, oh, he got the chest tube in. There's a return of air. There's a return of blood. The hemonumo. Okay, we kind of expected that based on mechanism injury. However, your patient's hemodynamics are not improving. So the next pressure that you see or that the scribe calls out is 70 over 30. And heart rate's now 170. So we know we're getting into trouble, right? Um, one of your nurses asks if you want to try rolling the patient on their side, of course, to see if that helps. And you're like, well, I really need to throw in a, a cordis uh, femoral would be easier. And that would be easier to throw it in the femoral artery than upper extremity, right? But let's think about the patient. Let's think about the baby. So remember that supine hypotension syndrome is real. So when they are laying on their uh, vena cava, of course, all of the pressure is displaced, right? So they're, they're flattening out that vena cava. It's compressed and they have no venous return. And of course, resultant hypotension is part of that. So we can go ahead and turn our patient 15 to 30 degrees, left lateral tilt. If they're on the backboard, just shove a couple pillows underneath the backboard. That's typically what I've done in my practice. And of course, their cardiac output is going to increase um, anywhere from 30 to 50%. So that's amazing. And um, you want to go ahead and do that. And you know, if the patient's on pressors and they're flat, you might want to turn them and see what your change is and then adjust your pressors because obviously they're not going to need as much pressor 
once you get the baby off of that vena cava. So supine hypotension syndrome is real. Make sure you're considering that. Go ahead and tilt that backboard um, to the left side. Get them get that venous return going and see if that affects your pressure. Now, in our um, scenario, you go ahead and you've got uh, two large bores. You got 16 gauges to both ACs. You go ahead and pull the trigger on your MTP protocol and one of your team members is assigned obviously to turn the patient. So while you're waiting for the first cooler to come, you go ahead and throw up some normal saline on the level one and you've also paged trauma surgery and OB because you're like, I don't know what's going to happen with this baby, but somebody needs to take care of the second patient, right? Um, you go ahead and repeat the fast, but you still don't see anything. Um, her hemodynamics are slightly improving. Her heart rate is now down to 130. BP is set 80 over 30. Uh, portable chest x-ray shows ET tube is good, chest tube is good. Um, you do have bilat pulmonary contusions, small residual left pneumohemothorax. X-ray of the pelvis shows no obvious fracture, which is amazing. And surgery calls down and asks, hey, can you get a CT scan to rule out retroperitoneal injury? So as you're going to prepare her for the scanner, your medical student go ahead is saying, hey, can we really scan this patient? So you know that CT imaging should be performed as clinically indicated on this tra pregnant, pregnant trauma patient, including CT of the abdomen and the pelvis. It will not um, expose the fetus to an unsafe amount of radiation. Be and you know, if you need contrast, you need contrast. But um, according to the American College of Radiology, doses of less than 50 are not associated um, with increased rates of fetal anomaly. So when we look at risks versus benefits, that's what you're looking at here. So, you know, you can even talk to the radiologist real quick about it, but this patient obviously needs what she needs. So you're going to go ahead and prep the patient for CT. Her heart rate is continuously dropping now, and she becomes ominously bradycardic. And oh my goodness, she loses her pulses. So now on ultrasound, there's agonal cardiac activity. No, no pericardial effusion is noted. So you start CPR, you get your code drugs, your epi, your bicarb, and as you re-examine her belly, you note that the uterine fundus is about six centimeters above the umbilicus. So we page NICU and OB again, and at your first pulse check, she does have some bradycardic electrical activity but no pulses and agonal activity in ultrasound. So now, what are we faced with? You have to decide, um, are we gonna deliver this baby or not? We need to get this baby out, right? So paramortem C-section has to be done. Are you equipped for it? Do you have the proper tools in your toolbox to do that in your trauma room? Right now, if you walked in and said, We've got a pregnant trauma patient coming. Do we have a warmer? Do we have a precip pack? Do we have the ability to deliver a baby here? Um, you really need to do that because the time that the patient comes in and you need it is not the time to wonder and ask if you're having the correct equipment. So yes, you decide to go ahead and initiate that within four minutes of arrest because anything other than that's gonna be a substantial delay, right? Um, if you don't get the kid out within four minutes of the cardiac arrest, we have not done what we need to do. So the AHA guidelines actually recommend um, prompt perimortem C-section. 
and that's what we need to do. So prior guidelines recommended waiting four to five minutes um, after the arrest to begin the perimortem C-section, um, you know, that type of thing. But now um, they're not recommending that. So they're basically saying as soon as mom loses pulses, you need to try to get the baby out. So if the pregnancy is greater than 20 weeks, you need to think about maternal arrest, and the best outcomes are when delivery occurs within five minutes. So you do not have much time um, at all. So when you think about that, you need to have your trays, your surgical trays. And, you know, if you only have a knife and scissors, you do the best that you can, but it would be nice if you could plan ahead. Um, I just highly suggest that you know you don't have residents or you know you don't have OB or NICU to respond, then you're on your own. So you need to kind of put together your own perimortem C-section kit, if you will. Because obviously, if mom has low cardiac output and she's arrested, then you know what's happening to baby. So that's lack of oxygen and that obviously is going to be a poor outcome for the the baby. So you go ahead and you're like, okay, we're going to get the baby out. You make your midline incision and you manage to extract a very cyanotic baby. And luckily by now the NICU team has responded. They've got the panda warmer. It's, It's on, it's ready to go. And they take the baby and obviously start their NRP and rewarming and stimulating and almost immediately upon getting the baby out your maternal hemodynamic status begins to improve. So you know a marked increase in bleeding from um, the site where you just open her up but the pulses return and you and the OB resident uh, quickly sew the uterus closed, pack the abdomen and her heart rate returns to 150 and obviously with palpable pulses Um, You note that the circulation has returned and OB and trauma surgery finally arrive and take the patient to the OR. So all is good, right? But had you not made those decisions in a quick and timely manner, you can see where your outcome would have been poor. So managing the resuscitation of a critically ill pregnant trauma patient is actually a high stress scenario, right? So it's something that you know, if you're thinking um, as an educator, what can I do to really challenge my trauma team? I would recommend this scenario or something similar. So the, the second, the other caveat to that is actually walking into your trauma resource room and saying, okay, we're getting a pregnant trauma patient and we're going to deliver right now. We've got four to five minutes to get the baby out. Where, where are our tools? Because I guarantee you, a lot of you may walk in there, and myself included, and think, oh, I have this tray, and I have that tray, and, you know, OB will come, and NICU will come, and that's great, but you still need the tools, right? You still need what you need. So let's not wait till we need them. Let's go ahead and put those things in place. And the last thing to that that I might add is any pregnant trauma patient that you do have and they have another mechanism of injury other than a um, blunt trauma. So they're not a motor vehicle crash. Remember that fall could have been a push down the stairs um, by a batterer or any significant other. And again, any other kind of trauma that a woman is so much more likely to be abused when they become pregnant. So 
it's like an inflammatory response to the batterer because you know someone else is getting attention other than him and he doesn't like that so they actually begin to abuse more physically and you don't want to miss those signs and symptoms because of course self-blame is what happens these women are going to try to protect their batterer whatever it is intimate partner violence can occur with anybody but particularly like I say when the woman becomes pregnant you know things shift in a relationship and usually the person who's used to getting all of the attention is not getting all of the attention that he or she wants or needs and so then they begin to become more abusive and psychologically the the patient who is pregnant is going to try to protect the unborn child and they really financially a lot of times they don't have a way to get out from underneath their abuser so I would just want you to think about that as well so a brief recap um, when we look at airway breathing circulation for the pregnant trauma patient again airway do you have your difficult intubation equipment or your difficult intubation cart ready to go can you get anesthesia in that trauma room within you know quickly in order to assist Um, prep for a smaller tube have other airway adjuncts available. Um, Again, don't overbag. So because of the increased airway edema and the mucosal membrane friability, likelihood to to bleed, and the decreased lower esophageal tone, these all can complicate your airway for the breathing. They're more likely to desat quickly, but when they do that, remember, when mom's desatting, baby is also desatting. So if they're 94 are they really maintaining their fetal oxygenation? Because they have that increased oxygen demand, decreased pulmonary reserve, and increased um, minute ventilation and tidal volume. So remember, if you're putting a chest tube in these patients, put it one to two interspaces higher than usual because of the displaced, the diaphragm is displacing, a gravid uterus displaces things. So think about that. Their vital signs are gonna change late in shock. So it's kind of like with kids, you know, children can compensate until they crash. Same with the pregnant trauma patient, right? Because they've got extra fluid, they've got extra blood. So their circulatory volume can mask uh, early volume loss and hypovolemic shock. So remember that the uterus falls posteriorly while they're supine. So you have that supine hypotension syndrome. It compresses the vena cava and then it reduces the venous return and cardiac output. So remember, tilt your backboard. Um, You can go ahead and just put them on their left lateral tilt um, and that's going to help some. And when we talk about circulation again, they have that reduced venal return and that compression is is huge. So uh, turn them on their left side and make sure that if you have early perimortem c-section you have the ability to get the baby out, that you have the correct tools in your toolbox, and last but not least, that your FAST is going to be way less sensitive in detecting hemorrhage. So do not rely upon that as you normally would in a non-pregnant trauma patient. So those are all things to consider, and I hope that you gain some knowledge from this podcast. And wherever you're tuning in, I hope that you have a great day evening, morning, and good night. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye.